You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 6th of November 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. I am asking every citizen from every party and every background and every race, color and creed to reject the Democrat politics of anger and division and to unite behind our... President Donald Trump urges voters to reject the politics of anger and division. Insert own joke about Pope urging congregation to reject Catholicism. My guests Mary Dejewski and Robin Lustig will be taking an extended look at today's midterm elections in the US and the day's other big stories including Iran and everyone else's response to the sanctions reimposed on the Islamic Republic and French President Emmanuel Macron's attempt to recruit a European army. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Mary Dejewski, columnist for The Independent and The Guardian, and Robin Lustig, journalist and broadcaster, former presenter of The World Tonight on BBC Radio 4. Welcome both. And we will start with an extended look at the United States, where if President Donald Trump has achieved nothing else in his two years in the White House, he has succeeded in turning the usually obscure borderline irrelevance of midterm elections into a spectacle that transfixes an anxious planet. All 435 seats in the House of Representatives are up for grabs, as are 35 of 100 Senate seats, 39 governorships and any number of state and local offices. Though the president himself is not on the ballot, he clearly very much is. Um, Robin, what does it strike you are the stakes here? I don't think the entire world has ever been anything anything nearly like this invested in a midterm election before. I'm sure that's right. And I mean, you're right to say that Trump isn't on the ballot, but of course Trump is the only issue, really. I mean, I don't think there's much doubt that the vast majority of people who are voting in the US today are going to be voting either for or against Donald Trump. He has dominated the campaign. He has been indefatigable with these huge rallies, which he loves so much. Uh, He has made it a referendum on Trump. So if his party, the Republicans, do better than expected, if which seems unlikely but not impossible, they retain control of the House of Representatives as well as the US Senate, he will be unstoppable. He will be victorious. He will be triumphant. He will be the emperor of the United States. And vice versa, if the Republicans do badly, then that will be seen as a defeat for Donald Trump. I suspect if the Republicans do do badly, he, he may find a way to reframe the parameters of what has been at stake here. It suddenly won't have been a referendum about him at all. He'll have been barely involved. He'll have I'm been sure the right. he, he'll have been the coffee boy uh, or something similar. Um, Mary, I'm, I'm just wondering, my, my own pet theory about Donald Trump, and this is me attempting to be optimistic, which was, it's now just dawning on me, he was an extremely stupid thing to be being about this time two years ago. But anyway, um, is that ultimately, his ultimate effect on American politics is, is going to be 
pretty much antithetical to what he wanted to do. Uh, and, we, and we've seen that already. We've seen it in a sort of enormous revival for organizations like CNN and the New York Times. We've seen Alabama send a Democrat to the Senate. Um, you know, record numbers of women and members of minorities running for election in uh, in, in this vote. Um, is the revival of interest in it? Because I think we can assume that the turnout is going to be way higher than it usually That's is. That's what it looks like. Yes. It does. Um, is, is this the Trump effect once again? Well, I mean, it does look as though he, a little bit like Jeremy Corbyn in the UK, has revived politics. Both, both men will thank you for that comparison, I'm sure. <laughs> but, it, I mean, it is extraordinary to look at the sort of popular participation that we're seeing um, at an election where the turnout is generally abysmal. Um, now, it may be that the turnout actually turns out not to be so wonderful as it looks. It's certainly up on the early voting, um, whether that get, gets carried through into actual voting and the whole turnout generally um, is hard to judge. Um, and I think it's hard to judge too um, whether, um, yes, the way it looks from both coasts, you've got this sort of massive um, protest vote in the making with all these new candidates who've either not been involved in politics before or who have um, joined some group to encourage the others. So all that's happening. But I think it's very difficult to get a handle on midterm elections where, although it is being presented, including by Trump as a, re uh, as a referendum on Trump, nonetheless, these are, for the most part, House seats and governorships where a lot of the issues are actually local issues. And that, to my mind, is one of the reasons why it's so difficult to call it, so difficult to judge what it's going to look like tomorrow morning. There's one other parallel with Jeremy Corbyn, which I think is quite instructive, which is that, like Corbyn, the um, increase in interest and participation in politics, which we've seen in the US as well as in the UK, tends to be in those areas where here, the Labour Party, Corbyn, were already doing well. And in the US, let's, I mean, you're, you're right, of course, Andrew, there are 435 House of Representative seats up, but only, what, 50 or fewer are genuinely in contention. And it could very well be that the huge turnout figures will be largely in places where the Democrats were going to win anyway. Uh, is it your sense, Robin, that the Republicans might have a case if they do badly, as the polls are generally predicting, that the Republicans might have a case that that's not really that big a deal? Because it is far from unusual for the first midterm in any presidency uh, to be an opportunity for the voters to remind the, the chap in the White House not to get too far in front of himself. This happened to Barack Obama in 2010, to Bill Clinton in 94, and so on. Absolutely right. Midterms usually are a kick in the pants for who whoever is in the White House. I think this is a bit different, partly because, as we were saying, it has become uh, this referendum on Donald Trump, and also because, uh, as was the case with the Clinton midterms where he did so badly, there is this huge I-word hanging over the whole election, impeachment. If the Democrats gain control of the House of Representatives, I think it is more than likely that they will begin the process which they hope might lead to the impeachment of the president. Personally, I think they would be wrong to do so, but I suspect that will be the temptation. Well, I actually very much doubt that they'll do that because I think that they would only risk starting that if 
unexpectedly, they also win control of the Senate. I think if they win control of both houses, then they would be very tempted um, maybe to try and sort of accelerate the Mueller inquiry, which seems to have got a bit bogged down, um, and to try to look for some motive for impeachment. But the first thing to say is that actually getting an impeachment, either a vote in the House or even more difficult in the Senate, is extremely hard. Um, So although control of both houses would be a start, it would only be a start. The other thing is that I think if, as looks possible, um, the Democrats only get control of the lower house, or maybe not even that... um, there is a sort of there is a sort of common wisdom around which says that would be a complete gridlock, um, and at least from the Democrats' point of view, that would be something. I'm not sure that's true, because when we've looked at how Trump has actually handled Congress, okay, so he's got a Republican majority in both houses at the moment, but it's not a very willing majority. They're not very much behind him. Nonetheless, he has been able almost to turn Democrats in his favour more than the Republicans. And I think in a way, um, he would probably start to do that and he wouldn't necessarily fail at it, even if he loses the House. Uh, Mary, as, as I mentioned earlier, unprecedented numbers of women and members of various minorities have been uh, inspired to stand in these elections. And there, there are some potentially significant results. And I guess what I'm asking is, is how significant are these possibilities? We may see the first Native American woman elected to Congress. That would be Sharice Davids in Canada. Kansas, uh, the first transgender governor, which would be Christine Halquist in Vermont, and the first black female governor, Stacey Abrams in Georgia. How seismic would any of those be? No, I think all of them um, would send a message and they would send a very interesting message in advance of the next presidential election and the next the, the next congressional elections. Um, I think that the fact that these developments are sort of happening almost in some ways because of Trump, but also despite Trump, um, also makes them particularly sort of signal events. At the same time, we have to look at all these seats and how many of them are actually going to change hands because... There are so many safe seats, so many seats that have already been gerrymandered. Um, you know, we just have to wait and see. Uh, Robin, one of the the individual races which is attracting uh, enormous attention, not just where it's happening, but around the world, is of course the the Texas Senate race between Ted Cruz and Beto O'Rourke. It seems, according to polls, unlikely-ish uh, that O'Rourke will tip Cruz out, though O'Rourke has raised phenomenal amounts of money uh, and equally phenomenal amounts of interest. Were O'Rourke to get up, um, are we potentially there, do you think, looking uh, at a standard bearer for the Democratic Party, possibly somebody even capable of making the same vault that Barack Obama did very quickly from junior senator to president? Well, you you put your finger on it. I mean, I think the reason that there has been so much excitement among Democrats at the O'Rourke phenomenon is that they are desperately hoping that that's exactly what he is, that he is the next Obama coming out of local politics, scoring scoring an upset and then storming into the White House. Um, Well, nothing is for certain, but, I mean, history tends not to repeat itself exactly like that, does it? Um, We shall see. One of the things that 
I can't predict and I'm not sure anybody can predict is what effect the results of today's elections will have on what a lot of American commentators are calling the culture war in the US. It's not so much about politics or about ideology. ideology. It's actually about culture. It's about beliefs. So that if some of these candidates whom you were talking about, the first transgender candidate to win election, the first black female governor uh, in Georgia, if these people do win, then there will be huge numbers of people who resent those wins, who feel that their country isn't the country that they thought they were living in. These are the people who love what Trump says, who love what Trump is. And of course, he panders to them. And it's it's very arguable, of course, that without Barack Obama in front of him, Donald Trump doesn't get elected. Precisely so. So um, whatever the results, you know, I don't think we can say, oh, good, uh, the the Trump phenomenon has been dented or the Trump phenomenon is over. There is something deeply, there is a deep fracture in the United States, which goes far beyond politics. And uh, it's not going to come to an end tomorrow morning. Yes. I mean, I was going to say that I think that Trump is getting a lot of flack and deservedly so for being so for running such a divisive campaign um, on behalf of the Republicans in these midterm elections. Um, But in a way, he's not responsible for those divisions. It was those divisions that were already there that actually propelled him to the presidency. So I think that um, although he obviously takes a lot of blame for for just the, the, the whole hostile tone um, of the Republican campaign especially, he didn't create those divisions. I was very struck by a column uh, by Paul Krugman in the New York Times. No friend of Donald Trump's has to be said. But nevertheless, he spoke of the Republican campaign the other day in terms which I have rarely seen a mainstream American commentator use. Uh, He said the Republican campaign message consists of nothing but lies. Hard to think of a single true thing that they are running on. But then he went on to say that this addiction to lies has turned the Republican Party into a party of bad people. Now, that is an extraordinary thing to well, say. We, we, we did reach, within the last few days, the, the through-the-looking-glass moment of several networks, including Fox News, pulling a Donald Trump advertisement Indeed. on the grounds... Because it had gone too far even for them. That, that, ...that they thought it was a bit much, um, well, or racist, to mm. use the more technically accurate <laughs> phrase, uh, Mary. Uh, Mary, a, a, a dog which has not barked so much during this election campaign is the, the investigation by Robert Mueller, who's barely featured in the news apart from as a... Well, the, the, the inadvertent cameo that he held in what appears to have been the most inept attempt at blackmail in, in human history, for which, um, and, and, and a hat tip to hapless Republican activist Jacob Wall there for, for bringing the world a portion of amusement uh, at a trying time. Uh, do we just assume from that that Robert Mueller has just gone decorously quiet during an election season and not wishing to repeat the uh, the James Comey furphy of a couple of years ago? Well, I think that's, that, that, that's as it were, a very sensible, rational explanation. Um, There are maybe other explanations because it seemed that even before the campaign went into sort of overdrive um, that somehow this particular um, investigation at least the Russia element of this investigation, was rather getting bogged down. And there were all sorts of other things going on, like money laundering, not paying taxes, and talking to the wrong sort of people. But Russia had sort of slid somehow out of the spotlight. Um, And another aspect of this, I think, maybe in the run-up to the elections, is that the Democrats haven't been using the Russia card against Trump, which suggests to me that maybe the whole hue and cry of 
against Russia is very much a Washington phenomenon. It's very much a political establishment phenomenon and that it doesn't really play to the base, um, either to the Trump base, but not to the Democrat base either. I think that's exactly right. I mean, I've read several comments to the the effect that the Democrats discovered quite early on in this campaign season that the the Russia story just simply didn't engage people. What did engage their base, the Democrat base, and undecided voters was health care. And that's what they've been campaigning on. Your health, your children's health, your parents' health. That's what they've been going on because that affects people's everyday lives. The Russia investigation is complex. It's arcane. As you say, Mary, it's in Washington. Um, My suspicion is that we will hear a great deal from Robert Mueller possibly quite soon. Um, He is remarkably taciturn. He has learnt from the James Comey experience, but I gather that that's been his, uh, his modus operandi throughout his career. Um, He doesn't say much, but when he does, I I think it'll pack a punch. Just as a very quick final thought on this, though, uh, Robin, we do need to consider at least the possibility uh, that in a few hours Donald Trump is is, is toasting yet another unlikely success with whatever he drinks instead of champagne. Uh, Should that happen, how long and hard a look does the Democratic Party need to take at itself? Oh, longer and harder. I mean, it's been taking long, hard looks at itself ever since Hillary Clinton lost to Donald Trump, and they haven't yet come up with an answer. Um, They are still a broken reed. Um, They don't really know what they should be fighting for anymore. They are deeply split between the progressives, the Bernie Sanderses and the pragmatists, the the Hillary Clintons and her successors. Um, They've got to get their act together. I mean, if they do lose tonight again, the second time in two years to Donald Trump, the most disgraceful, nastiest, uh, most incompetent uh, political candidate that we've seen for very, very many years, then they've got a really, really difficult problem that they've got to confront. And there's a graphic illustration of that, that in the last few weeks of the campaign, fronting the Democratic campaign was none other than Barack Obama, which was the extraordinary um, evidence of the fact that the Democrats have spent the last two years and they haven't found anybody to raise their standard in any campaigning way. Well, we're going to take a short break now. There will be more on the midterms on the daily starting at 2200 tonight. Uh, For now, you are listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Robin Lustig and Mary Dijewski. Coming up next, Iran learns to live again with sanctions. How do we make better cities? Places that work for people of all ages and backgrounds and provide the obvious essentials from great transport to perfect places to work as well as the softer elements that truly deliver quality of life from urban swimming pools to rooftop clubs. Published by Gestalten, the Monocle Guide to Building Better Cities unpacks what makes a great city. Whether you're looking for a new place to call home or need a little help fixing up your own. The latest in our series of beautiful large format books is available now. Buy yours at monocle.com slash shop. Monocle. Keeping an eye and an ear on the world.
You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Mary Dijewski and Robin Lustig. Now, among the locations where a significant electoral reverse for Donald Trump would be received with a special mirth is Iran, languishing ever since yesterday under sanctions reimposed by the US as a follow-on to Trump's withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal. Sergei Lavrov, Foreign Minister of Russia, itself on the receiving end of other American sanctions, has said that the renewed sanctions on Iran are not legitimate and that Russia and other European nations will find ways to continue trading with Iran anyway, so there. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, meanwhile, has said that, quote, the Iranian regime has a choice. It can either do a 180-degree turn from its outlaw course of action and act like a normal country, or it can see its economy crumble. Um, Mary, first of all, on the stated ambition there of uh, Secretary of State Pompeo, is there anything wrong as just as an ambition, as an idea uh, of with Iran this this thought of Iran acting like a normal country. I mean, I, I think it's something most Iranians would probably be quite happy to see occur. Well, that's true. But the problem is that in um, reimposing the sanctions and withdrawing from the nuclear agreement, the Americans seem to have done their absolute utmost to discourage Iran from behaving like a normal country. Because that, in a way, was the purpose of the Iran agreement, the nuclear agreement. And so far as everybody else who signed up to that agreement goes with the Europeans and you know the Russians and whoever um, Iran has not been in breach of the agreement. The problem for the Americans and specifically for Trump and Pompeo seems to be that they say that the agreement as it was as it was concluded was actually a bad agreement and that's why they've withdrawn from it not specifically because of any um, any breaches by Iran. Um, Robin, I, I have very mixed feelings about sanctions. Whenever they're raised in or imposed in circumstances like this, I can't help but think of a, a mournful friend of mine in Belgrade in, I guess it must have been 2000, towards the end of the, the, the Milosevic uh, gangstership. Uh, but just saying what possible good does the West think is going to come of locking us in a cage with a maniac? Uh, is, is that what we're doing to Iran? Uh, it's what the Americans are doing to Iran, yes. Um, I, I think one of the many things that are desperately sad about what uh, the Trump administration is doing is that it strengthens the worst people in Iran and weakens the better people in Iran. The political system in, in Iran is immensely complex and immensely fluid. Um, there is no doubt at all that lots and lots of Iranian voters put their confidence in President Rouhani based on his promise that having signed this deal, their lives would be better. The economy would flourish, sanctions would be lifted. What Mr. Trump has done is prove him wrong. Not because the Iranians broke the agreement, there is general consensus that they have abided by every dot and comma of the agreement. I think, uh, I mean, the Iranian economy has already been suffering quite seriously even before this latest tranche of sanctions went into effect. Um, the hardliners in Iran, who have always been powerful, will now be more powerful. Uh, President Rouhani, who was under pressure is now under more pressure and uh, I think it, there's a real risk it could backfire horribly and when things backfire in Iran they can get quite ugly. Mary, do we even understand what 
the American strategy here is? Or is this just as simple as another manifestation of Donald Trump's absolutely pathological need to undo anything that Barack Obama might have done? Well, I suspect there's probably a large element of that in it. Um, and there's also the fact that I suppose the, the Trump himself and the Trump team were sort of looking around the world at the things that they particularly disliked that were um, in operation and Iran and the Iran nuclear deal came up quite close to the top of the list. Um, but I think there's another, obviously, that there's a sort of side effect of what may happen, enormous uncertainty in Iran. But one of, I think, at least so far, the more cheering things that's come out of this is that very unusually, to my mind, um, the Europeans and the Russians and pretty much everybody else um, has refused to join in the, Ameri the, the Americans' dismantling of sanctions. So while they've been threatened by the United States by having their interests affected negatively, obviously, um, if they refuse to reimpose sanctions, nonetheless, they're actually not doing that. And so far, at least, the Iranians, for their part, including Rouhani, while the, he, he's been, Rouhani has had some quite tough words. Nonetheless, the Iranians have done nothing that would actually jeopardize the agreement because I think they understand that there is support elsewhere from the Europeans and that people are actually trying to work against this. So Trump isn't having it all his own way. And I think this is almost the first example of something like this. OK, well, finally tonight, let's look at France, where as part of the commemorations of the centennial Armistice Day this Sunday, President Emmanuel Macron has visited Verdun as a salutary reminder as exists of the dangers of European disunity. Between February and December of 1916, upwards of 750 50,000 French and German soldiers were killed or injured struggling for this small town on the Meuse River, which has a population today of fewer than 20,000. President Macron used the visit to Verdun to urge the formation of a true European army. Um, Robin, this idea has been floating around for some while. Uh, it was actually quite regularly invoked here during the Brexit referendum as reason for the UK to get out. Uh, is such a thing either necessary or desirable? I guess what, what I'm asking here is what would a European army do that NATO doesn't? Well, the, the, the first answer to your first question is simply no, neither necessary nor desirable. What would it do? Very good question. Um, I don't think it would be able to do anything because I can't think of a single European government, probably including the French government, which would be prepared to allow some supranational body to put its own men and women onto a front line at risk of their lives. It is the one decision that every national government jealously guards and uh, gosh knows, I mean there's, there's enough anti-EU feeling around the 27 27 and a half nations still in the EU as it is. Try this one and uh, it, it's not a runner. Uh, Mary, what do you think? Is this Macron just increasing his, you know, increasingly obvious uh, pitch to be the de facto Euro leader of Europe? What with Merkel uh, now, you know, preparing to step down, uh, the UK leaving the EU, and so forth. It, you know, and and possibly even the United States drifting further away, which which would leave um, France the 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 sole nuclear powered member of both the EU and NATO. Yes, and I think there was this um, American angle to what Macron was saying about 
about uh, about the European army. I mean, I agree with Robin in the small print of this, that expecting sovereign countries to join together in a single army and have um, some collective leader sending the troops of individual countries into war um, is A, very hard to imagine and questionably desirable. On the other hand, I'm actually quite a big supporter of a European army. Um, I think that it's something that um, the European Union needs. It's something that it's been impossible to get agreement on, not because a majority of EU members were not in favour of it, but because the Brits consistently vetoed any talk of a European army because they saw it as potentially eroding the NATO alliance or duplicating the NATO alliance and therefore jeopardising the UK's, quote, special relationship with the United States. Now, of course, with every word that I've just said, things have changed in the last two years because the US administration of Donald Trump um, has been much cooler on the NATO alliance. much more insistent that the Europeans have to pay their way and much less protective than almost any previous American president that I can remember um, of NATO and the transatlantic alliance being something that sort of precluded a collective European defence effort. So, um, you know, I have huge sympathy with the idea that there ought to be um, some way that the Europeans can exercise a degree of hard power. And that may not entail ordering troops into war. It may be much more of a deterrent factor and an actual capability. And I would actually support that. I mean, just very briefly, I would much rather see NATO still being the the forum in which this kind of thing is done, even if uh, President Trump remains where he is, the US policy towards NATO remains what it is, those are two big ifs, Um, then NATO may have to reconfigure itself into more of a European defence alliance without necessarily making that that, that next step into a European army. Extremely quickly, Mary, is, is there anything that can't be done with with the best will in the world outside the structures that already exist, such as the UN or NATO? Well, I think that um, my impression is that the Europeans and probably the further Macron gets into his job and his ambitions, um, the more it needs some armed capability. And as I said, it was the Brits who were stopping that. So the main obstacle to that is being eliminated. Well, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Robin Lustig and Mary Dijewski, thank you both for joining us at Midori House. The show is produced by Daniel Bates, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Gabriel Delasanti. Our studio manager was Sarah Miles. Music next at 1900. It's Monocle on Design. I'm back with more on the day's main stories, i.e. those midterm elections on the Monocle Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening.